as I said earlier, we, for the last seven weeks, in God's kindness, have looked at Christ's letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And now we are summoned to heaven this evening as the scene genuinely shifts in a magnificent and most majestic way as we want to look at all 11 verses in chapter 4 together this evening. So let me read this wonderful text in our hearing tonight and and then pray for our time and, and we'll begin. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through His great and glorious Word. After this I looked, and behold... A door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must soon take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he sat there. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne there were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like a crystal, And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him, who lives forever and ever, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created." Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask that you would bless us in our study of this most wondrous text, and that you would help us to see something of your splendor, something of your beauty, something of your majesty, that in beholding your glory, we might be transfixed and transformed evermore into the image of your Son. Help us to hear this Word. Help us to heed this Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'm sure a number of you are familiar with a 20th century Christian author named A.W. Tozer. Tozer is surely in the American setting, one of the most influential devotional writers of the last 100 years. And if you know anything about Tozer, part of the reason he's so beloved is because he can pack a punch in his teaching. He was someone that didn't want to just gloss over the many inconsistencies that he saw in the American church. And so he was often about the business, it seems, about uncovering the true reality of the American church in his day. And a few subjects kind of reveal his thoughts along these lines as do his writings on worship. For example, in 1963... He wrote in a denominational newsletter, It is scarcely possible in most places 
to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with Him. One can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with Him because they want something else to attract them. Written in 1963, nearly 60 years later, do you think we're better off? Further on, I'm sure in some ways we may be, some ways we may not be. But what we need to see tonight, kids, is the supreme attraction of all the universe, which is the glorious God who is seated on heaven's throne. Because, kids, I want you to think with me for a second. When you arrive at the Lord's house on the Lord's day, what are you most excited about when it comes to a worship meeting? I would imagine a number of you are excited about seeing your friends. Lord's Day fun and fellowship. And those are all things to be excited about, aren't they? But what you need to know from our text this evening is they're not the things to be most excited about. The thing that ought to excite God's people most is meeting with God Himself. Because this simple chapter is wanting to underscore the reality for us this evening that at the very epicenter of heaven, the all-absorbing, ever-consuming reality is none other than God Himself. And so we're going to see that in a variety of different ways together this evening. But simply what you need to see, what John wants his readers in that first century context to know is just this. The sovereign God is seated on heaven's throne. And I want you to see by the end why that would have been so significant for first century readers and hearers. Only the sovereign God is seated on heaven's throne. And so, what we're going to see in the course of this week and, Lord willing, next week are these two chapters that lie at the end of the Bible's final book that many people have called the best expression of worship that you're going to find in all of the Bible. You know, you can meditate on these two chapters, only these two chapters for the rest of your life. And I promise you, you will never exhaust what are the inexhaustible riches of these two chapters. Only the sovereign God sits on heaven's throne, therefore He is most worthy, isn't He? Of worship. So we're going to look at this text in three simple ways. First, worship Him because of His greatness. Number two, worship Him because of His holiness. Number three, because of His worthiness. So you notice again, verse 1, what John tells us. After this, that's receiving the letters to the churches, he says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Now kids, I'm sure if you saw a door that was open before you to heaven, you would want to go through, wouldn't you? Maybe you would step towards it with some sense of fear and trepidation, not knowing what's on the other side. Well, John gets a summons to walk through the door. You'll notice Jesus speaks to him as verse 1 continues. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, we know that's the Son of Man from back in Revelation 1, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So the first reason that God is great in this passage is because He controls the course of history. The previous two chapters, if you went back to the end of chapter 1, you would see this. But the seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus says, are about the things that are presently. This is how things are currently. And now He summons John up to heaven's throne room and says, you need to now know the things that will be. He's not just Lord of the present. 
God is Lord over all the future. And the rest of the story of Revelation makes pretty abundantly clear, doesn't it? That there's not a single event that's ever happened in human history that's outside of God's sovereign control. He's great because he controls the course of human history. Number two, he's great because of his incomprehensible majesty. Look at verse 2 as John continues. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. So here is this all-absorbing, ever-consuming reality. And as so often happens in Revelation, it's as though John is grasping for words to explain what he's seen. And a lot of times what he falls back on is just language and imagery, metaphors taken from the Old Testament. You'll notice what he says as verse 3 continues. This one on the throne had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. So students, you might know Jasper and Carnelian. You may not. It's a precious stones that spoke of royalty. And beauty, it's not just Jasper and Carnelian that he sees. You'll see around the throne, as verse 3 ends, there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So again, beauty and, and royalty in some ways with the color, but more significant is that what is surrounding heaven's throne, God's throne, is a rainbow. So kids, what does the rainbow mean? What does the rainbow tell us about God? Well, we know, don't we, from Genesis That the rainbow always shows us God's covenant-keeping faithfulness, His covenant-making mercy. This is so intrinsic to who God is that this rainbow symbolizes His faithfulness and mercy as it surrounds the throne. And if you skip down to verse 6, what he sees there at the foot of the throne, before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. You have to understand something about how first century people understood the sea and its spiritual significance, to know why the fact that it looks like this glass sea would have been so incredibly moving to John. Because you might know in the ancient world, the sea was associated as the source of satanic chaos and and evil. You know, it was a power place that just was always working for the purposes of the enemy. But John sees from the perspective of heaven, from God's vantage point, the sea isn't rough, is it? The sea isn't chaotic, isn't it? It's absolutely calm, just like a sea of glass. And that ought to be a comfort to many of you in here tonight. You you go through seasons in life, don't you, where God has placed you in a moment of affliction, a moment of hardship, a moment of suffering. It seems like your life is little more than a sea of chaos. Perhaps even you feel as though it's a sea of evil. But you know that God is reigning And ruling on the throne. And from his perspective. As hard as this might be to grasp. Your life is perfectly calm. Because everything is going as he said it's supposed to go. Not just that. We see his greatness in these 24 elders that are around him. You'll see clothed in white garments. With golden crowns around their heads. Further, verse 5 tells us, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And if you've been with us in recent weeks, the seven spirits of God in Revelation is always the way the book of Revelation depicts, portrays the Holy Spirit. So these seven burning torches, just symbolic of the Holy Spirit. More significant here is the thunder, the lightning, the rumblings that erupts from God's throne. Our last house that we lived in was just around the corner, two, three blocks away at most, from a local elementary school. And so it's, you know, emergency warning siren would 
frequently go off the first Saturday of the month, and our children would often wail about noon on the first Saturday of the month, like, what emergency is here that this thing is going off? And there were a number of times that we lived in that house that it would wake us up in the middle of the night. Then if you're anything like me, you hear an emergency siren going off, and you wake up in the middle of the night, you look over at your spouse if you have one, and you think, should we really get out of bed? (laughs) Nothing ever happens when that emergency siren goes off. And certainly if you're anything like me, you never get out of bed when the emergency siren goes off for, for good or ill. When you, when you see thunder and lightning and rumblings from the throne, it's meant to be this kind of emergency siren of sorts. Because again, John seems to be grasping for words to what he's experiencing. And pretty much what he takes almost verbatim is the depiction of God's glory descending on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. When the glory of God descended there at the mountain and with thunder and lightning and rumblings. His presence shook the mountain to such a degree that nobody could come close lest they die. They had to consecrate themselves lest God's glory consume them. And in the same way, isn't it true that we are all sinful people standing before the Lord, that unless we consecrate ourselves, His glory will break out against us in its thunderous wrath, in its lightning terror, that in our sin. We can't come near. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that because of His mercy and grace, His sacrifice, His work in our place, we who were sinful now by faith and trust in Jesus Christ can not just come near to this throne. Don't you know how the New Testament often tells us to come near boldly and confidently to this place of thunder and rumbling and lightning Such is the work of Jesus Christ. Worship Him because of His greatness. Number two, worship Him because of His holiness. Notice how verse 6 continues. At the end and around the throne, each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. I was reading this yesterday uh, with our children, and they remarked to me as we got to this point, Wait, that sounds a lot like Ezekiel. Because if you've been with us in recent months, all the way back in September, we read of these heavenly creatures, all the way back in Ezekiel, pretty much identically as they're presented here in Revelation chapter 4. So what do they depict? God's holiness, God's rule. You notice as the text continues that one of them has the face of a lion, one of them has the face of an ox, one of them has the face of a man, and one of them has the face of of an eagle. And those are meant to be depictions, reflections of God's divine power and holiness because the lion, of course, is the, the ruler of the wild animals. The ox is the ruler of the domesticated animals. The eagle is the ruler of the winged animals. And the man is the ruler of all of God's creation. And what you're going to find in Revelation, if you stick with us along the way in the coming months, is that God's heavenly assistants tend to reflect His attributes. And they don't only reflect His attributes, they also sing of His attributes. You'll notice verse 8 as they continue. Day and night never ceasing to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. You know, in this time of the year, isn't it true that you can go to many different places and you have no small number of sights and sounds that announce to you that Christmas is here? 
You know, I'm sure that many of you might come across a store or in and out of a store in, in coming weeks and you'll hear this kind of jingling bell out front if they still do this in our COVID pandemic era, but a jingling bell out front which summons the Salvation Army's holiday gift drive and, and a few things like jingling bells uh, tend to announce that, that Christmas is here. And in a much more serious and reverent way, the heavenly creatures announcing God's holiness is what signals that God is here because he's not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's thrice perfect in his holiness and his eternity. He is the only one who was and is and is to come. Worship him because of his greatness. Worship him because of his holiness. Number three, worship him because of his worthiness. His worthiness. Uh, you'll notice the, the sound of the heavenly creatures there in verse 8 meets a constant echo in these elders, these 24 elders around the throne. Look at verse 9 and 10. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him. So we need to think for a second, don't we, about these 24 elders. Everything in Revelation represents something. Oftentimes in this kind of enigmatic, symbolic, and mysterious way. If you just glance back up to verse 4, again, you'll notice that they're clothed in white garments. On their heads are these golden crowns. But what's the significance of 24 elders? Now, some people have said it might be kind of symbolic of the fact that you had 24 orders of priests in the Old Testament or 24 orders of singers in the Old Testament temple and their works in some way kind of mirrors. These 24 elders, their work mirrors that of the Old Testament priests or singers. I think what is probably much more likely and much better is to see them as representing the entirety of God's people throughout redemptive history because it was the 12 patriarchs in the Old Testament that represented that old covenant people. It was 12 apostles in the New Testament that represented the new covenant people of God. And kids, surely you know what 12 plus 12 equals 24 elders which here is symbolic, representing God's people throughout the ages. There, and notice their worship before the Lord. It's one of worthiness, isn't it? Verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So students, stare at that verse just for a second longer. According to these 24 elders, what is the reason for God's worthiness in worship? You might just say it this way. He is the sovereign ruler of all the universe. The greatest galaxy he created down to the most minuscule molecule he created. And everything in between exists only because of this great God. The sovereign God who sits on heaven's throne. You know, children, I hope that you have some stories that your parents read to you, that maybe you read on your own if you're old enough. Those kind of stories that just whisk you off into this fictional land. You know, if you've been with us for any length of time, I suppose, at Redeemer, you'll not have to wait too long before I make some sort of reference to Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings. And the reason isn't because they're the only books I've ever read. The reason is because they're the only books I've ever read that just can transport me to another world. And just like the Pevensey children in the Chronicles, you get transported to another world and it seems to somehow shape, affect, even transform your life in this world. 
And that's what the Lord means to do for us as we listen to this great word of Christ, this incredible scene there in heaven that we're transported, aren't we? To the world of heaven. And it's meant to transform our life here on earth. It's meant to do something to our worship, isn't it? That our worship on earth would be as it is in heaven. So as we begin to close, let me just give you three simple truths about worship according to this passage. Worship in accord with heaven. Number one, worship the Trinity. Uh, You'll see this if you just read Revelation 1 sitting, but just read Revelation 4 and 5 in one sitting. And kids, you can circle every time the word throne shows up in these two chapters. Fifteen times in two chapters. It is really the pulse beat, the, the heartbeat of the, in, in the entire book of Revelation. is God's throne. And what you see in chapter 4, the Father sits on the throne. In chapter 5, we'll see, Lord willing, next week, the Son ascends to the throne. And in both chapters, the Holy Spirit surrounds the throne. That we worship a God who is triune. That He is three in one. One in three, we praise the Trinity. And isn't this what makes us unique of all religions and devotions in the world, that we don't just worship God. We worship a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Number two, worship in humility. Worship in humility, not just worship the Trinity. Worship in humility. You'll notice what the elders do if you flip back up to verse 10. What they do before they sing their song of God's worthiness, they cast their crowns before the throne. These crowns that surely in some ways in Revelation depict this rule, depict not just their authority, but also the kind of kingdom responsibilities in certain ways. And they recognize in front of God's footstool, in front of God's throne, what are these golden crowns but nothing to be thrown before the heavenly footplace of God? For what reward, what responsibility, what right do you have that God hasn't given you, that you haven't received from Him? The the proper response whenever you come to worship a great God like this is to come in humility. What crown might you need to cast before God if you were to come and worship Him truly? Worship the Trinity, worship in humility. Number three, worship because of God's sovereignty. Because of God's sovereignty. In a way that's not always easy to understand unless you just kind of read this chapter in light of the entire book in one setting. That The point of this chapter isn't to show us what heaven is like. So my son, one of my sons last night when we were reading the text, he said something that I'm sure many of you might feel before. You kind of read through this passage and he said, I did not know that that was what heaven is going to be like. And it's an understandable response, isn't it, to a chapter like this? As though it's just giving us a, a, a passage, if you will, into heaven that we might observe what's going on there. But in the course of Revelation, it's not meant to give us a peek into heaven as it is. It's meant to give us a peek into who rules in heaven. Who sits on the throne of heaven. For why would a first century reader and hearer of this book so desperately need that truth? That God rules from heaven's throne. Facing immense persecution. Facing incredible affliction. Facing untold opposition. They need to know someone is ruling and reigning over all of it. And maybe you need to know that even this evening, in the midst of perhaps your persecution, your affliction, your opposition, your suffering, your sorrow, your sadness, that He's still on the throne in the midst of that hardship and hurt, that He is still there 
ruling and reigning. And from his perspective, all is as a sea of glass down below. Going just as he said it must. In order to bring you great good and him eternal glory. So yes, we, we worship the Trinity. We worship in humility. We worship because of his sovereignty. But surely it's good news, isn't it? That this is the kind of worship that we'll engage in for all eternity. Such as the glory and the goodness of our great sovereign God. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us eyes to see. With the heart and mind of faith. Your greatness and your goodness. Your splendor and your majesty. That we might be humbled in response that we might be comforted through your grace and through your might. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, let us stand together.